Okay, we continue now with the discussion of the greater discourse to Sakaludai, the Maha Sakaludai Sutra. And in this discourse, the Buddha has been explaining to the wanderer Sakaludai the reasons why the Buddha's disciples respect and venerate him and live in dependence on him. And we have been going step by step through all the various different practices that make up the Buddhist path. And now today we come to section 25, which is on the four jhanas. In the last class, we discussed some practices that are rather unfamiliar parts of the canon practices which have not been sort of transmitted faithfully within the Buddhist tradition. But now we come to very familiar territory, sets of practices which are mentioned over and over again in the Pali Canon. And now the Buddha begins by explaining the way to develop the four jhanas. This practice of the jhanas, this belongs to the section of the Noble Eightfold Path called Samadhi, the practice of Samasamadhi, right concentration. And the jhanas are very elevated, exalted states of concentration in which the mind crosses over a very important threshold which separates the ordinary sensuous type of consciousness from the state of consciousness which really pertains to the rupa doctrine, the fine material realm, the brahma-loka. To attain a jhanic state is in effect to live as a brahma a Brahma deity right in this human world. This is the normal mode of consciousness of the beings in the Brahma Loka. But in order for a human being to achieve the states of the jhana, they have to train the mind very diligently in the practice of samatha meditation in order to achieve samadhi. And in order to achieve the jhana, one must select one of the meditation subjects which leads to the attainment of jhana. Not all the meditation subjects are capable of bringing the mind to jhana. For example, the reflective meditations, like the recollection of death, the recollection of the qualities of the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, um, the analysis of the uh, contemplation of the loathsomeness and food, these meditation subjects cannot lead to the jhanas. And even the meditation subjects like the Asuba Bhavana, the analysis into elements, the cemetery meditations, these, at the most, can lead only to the first jhana. And even then, I'd say that they're quite difficult as subjects for achieving jhana. 
because they involve a lot of discursive thinking. The type of meditation subjects which are most conducive to attaining jhana are those which involve a quieting down of the thinking process, the stilling of the mind, the focusing of the mind upon a single, very simple object. And that is why in the Buddhist tradition, for achieving the four jhanas, the recommended meditation subjects are anapanasati, that's mindfulness of breathing, or the kasina bhavana, the meditation on a colored disc representing one of the elements or just a simple color. The meditation of the sublime states, the brahma-viharas, the universal love, compassion, altruistic joy and equanimity, these can also lead to jhanic attainments. But I'd say in a somewhat roundabout or circuitous route, because in those meditations also one has to use a lot of discursive thinking. But in anapanasati or the kasina meditation, there's no object or no need to think and reflect, but the mind is just fixed upon a simple object and repeatedly brought back to fix and focus on that object whenever it strays and wanders. And in order to achieve the jhana, the first task that has to be accomplished after one becomes familiar with the meditation system is to eliminate and to overcome five mental states which are the special obstacles or impediments to concentration or even to insight or to any type of meditation. These five states are called the five hindrances, the panchanivarana. According to the standard formula for the first jhana, the Buddha says at the very beginning, here quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters and dwells in the first jhana. In that formula, the Buddha indicates two things that the meditator must do to achieve the jhana. First, he must seclude, become secluded from sensual pleasures, that is, to abstain from indulging in sensual and outward sensual pleasures. But by the second phrase, he indicates what has to be done in the mind, that is, to isolate or seclude the mind from the defilements or corruption. And what is meant by this those unwholesome states or those mental corruptions are precisely these five hindrances. And so from time to time the meditator might have to do particular types of reflection and contemplation to overcome sensual desire, say, by reflecting on the different impure, repulsive parts of the body, to overcome ill will by practicing metabodhana 
and so on. That's to overcome the coarser aspects of the five hindrances. But once the meditator is no longer disturbed by these coarse manifestation of the hindrances, just the act of focusing the mind on the object and bringing the mind back again and again to the object whenever the mind wanders and strays and loses its mindfulness just that act of repeated attention is continually building up and strengthening the faculties that will drive the hindrances away and so once the mind begins to fix upon the object and to remain steady upon that object then there will come a kind of joy that arises and when that joy starts to arise then the mind is less and less inclined to wander and stray along the dangerous um, byways of sense, desire, ill will, it won't become drowsy and dull, it won't become restless, and it will not be plagued by doubts anymore. Because when this joy arises through the strengthening of concentration, then faith will become stronger because of the success of the practice. And then as joy becomes stronger, more powerful, then it brings into play another factor, which is called sukha, bliss or happiness. Okay, now this repeated effort to keep the mind on the object, this focusing of the mind on the object, this application of the mind to the object, this is what is meant by vitaka. Normally vitaka in ordinary discourse that means thinking, thinking about this, thinking about that. But what goes on when one is thinking is that the mind is fixing upon a particular object. In this case, when the meditator is developing concentration, he's not thinking about diverse objects, but just fixing the mind to this one simple, this one simple, unvarying object. Just the sensation of the in and out breathing, or just that colored patch of the casino object and again and again fixing the mind on the object that is the tucking. and as he's fixing the mind on the object he's also examining that object inspecting the object not in order to distinguish different features of it since that will disperse the beam of concentration but he, there's just a kind of looking at the object or we could say an anchoring of the mind onto the object, even a kind of mental rubbing of the object. That is what is called vichara. 
and so in the initial stage for developing the jhana we have this working of vitaka applying the mind to the object vichara examining the object or rubbing the object and as vitaka and vichara become steadier and more and more fixed upon this object without wavering then there will arise this experience of the called piti joy or rapture elation where the mind starts to feel uplifted by the power the growing power of concentration and when this piti arises then it brings along a feeling of pleasure or bliss or pleasure bliss or happiness this is super and all of these factors are all governed you can say and directed to the strengthening of the one pointed concentration on the object that is a habitual and so even in these initial stages of concentration the five factors of absorption the five jhana factors are already becoming activated already being empowered and as they increase in power they become more and more effective in keeping the mind steadily concentrated on the object to the stage where the five hindrances become completely eliminated completely overcome this stage of overcoming the five hindrances is not yet jhana this stage is called in the language of the commentaries it's called upachara samadhi which means access concentration or neighborhood concentration proximate concentration in a venerable Piedasi just pointed out to me that one shouldn't think that <laughs> that one shouldn't be misled by this diagram on the blackboard and think that there's some one-to-one relationship that Vitaka overcomes sensual desire Vichara overcomes ill will um, Piti overcomes sloth and torpor not like that I'm just putting these two lists on because it's um, you find that my Buddhist meditation yeah. I have given that it's the order yeah. Yeah. But actually in the Visuddhi Maka mentioned some kind of idea in one of the old commentaries that there's some one-to-one relationship between the five jhana factors and the five hindrances. But I have to say I don't really find that very convincing. Um, it seems rather artificial attempt to make some kind of alignment between which jhana factors overcome which hindrances um, I think what we would say is that all the jhana factors together overcome all the hindrances together
Okay, so now when the jhana factors become strong enough to keep the hindrances away, then this state is called upachara samadhi. Also in the Visuddhi Magga method, they bring in the distinction of different kinds of nimittas, but I don't want to use that kind of explanation here because one doesn't find that in the Buddha's explanation of jhana in the sutra. Even though I think that there is some validity to that scheme of nimittas, but I just want to keep the explanation at the level of the sutra itself. Okay, so now in Upachara Samadhi, the five hindrances have subsided and the five jhana factors have been activated, but this is not yet full absorption, not yet the first jhana. What has to be done is to continually return again and again to the meditation subject until the five jhana factors reach such a degree of power that they lift the mind above the level of what we call kama vachara chitta, the sense sphere consciousness, and direct it into the level of rupa vachara consciousness. That is a completely different dimension of consciousness, the kind of consciousness which belongs to the Brahma Loka, to the world of the Brahma deities. It's a state in which the mind is completely absorbed in the object, so there's no more rippling or disturbance, even by discursive thinking. And what is distinguishing about this first jhana is the presence of these five jhana factors. These are the factors which define the jhana. And so when the Buddha says that the monk enters and dwells in the first jhana, he says that it is accompanied by applied and sustained thought. But this is vitaka and vichara, not in the sense that one is thinking about the object or pondering it, but just in the sense that the mind has been applied to that object and is examining the object or is rubbing against the object. And then the mind is accompanied by happiness and pleasure born of seclusion, born of the seclusion from the five hindrances and from all sense objects. And then the Buddha illustrates the state with a very beautiful simile. Or he continues by then the Buddha continues by explaining how the meditator experiences the state of jhana. He says that he makes this, it's the Vivekajan Piti Sukham, this happiness and pleasure, or I would actually say this joy and pleasure, born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body, 
so that there is no part of his whole body which is not pervaded by the happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. That is, at the same time that the mind is absorbed in this object, the joy and the happiness and bliss become so intense and so pervasive that they are felt as pervading the entire body, that the whole body just becomes a body of bliss, a body of rapture. And then the Buddha illustrates this with a very beautiful simile in each of these uh, explanations of the jhanas, there's a very beautiful simile brought in. He says that it's just like a bath attendant. I guess in India, they, at the time, they had these bathing houses where people would go to be bathed and not shaved. And so when the bath attendant has to prepare some <laughs> bath powder, at that time they didn't have, I was about to say soap, but at that time they probably didn't have soap, but some other substance that they used. But we could think in present day terms, we could think, <laughs> think of it as a soap. <coughs> And so he will take some of this bathing powder, a soapy powder, and put it into a basin. Then he would sprinkle water in, and then mix the water and the soap together until one gets a huge ball of this soapy substance. And the ball has such a characteristic that the water pervades the entire ball all of the soap is permeated with this water and yet the pervasion by the water is so perfect that there's no part of the soap that's not pervaded by water and yet there's no excess of water that the water is oozing and dripping out from the bowl but it's just a perfect perfectly produced bowl of soap soapy substance pervaded with water. In the same way, the Buddha continues, the meditating monk makes the happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. This is like the water. He makes that happiness and pleasure born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill and pervade this body that there's no part of this whole body that's not pervaded by that joy and pleasure born of seclusion. We can compare that the body is like the, the substance, the soapy substance, the joy and pleasure is like the water and just as the water is mixed into the soap, so this joy and pleasure born of seclusion are made to pervade this entire body from top to bottom. Okay, but even this state of joy and bliss is far from being the end of the Buddhist path of concentration but really it's just the first level of absorption. So now the meditator who masters the first jhana, 
so he's able to enter into it whenever he wants, remain in it as long as he wants, come out immediately whenever he wants. Now he begins to reflect upon the flaws and defects in this first jhana. He considers that this jhana, as joyful, as blissful as it is, is still relatively coarse. And why is it coarse? Because it has some degree of discursive thinking, vitaka and vichara. And also it's quite close to the five hindrances. So if the thinking process should slip away from absorption, then the meditator might again become a victim of sensual desire, anger, laziness, restlessness, and so on. Therefore, the meditator determines to achieve the next higher level of concentration. Again, he applies his mind to the meditation subject, continues practicing with a determination to reach the next level, the second job. And when his faculties become fully matured, then those two grosser factors, the taka and the chara, fall away, and the mind re-enters into concentration, but this time without any applied and sustained thought, but rather with only these three factors of joy, happiness, and one-pointedness. And this is the attainment of the second jhana. Here the meditator, the Buddha says, with the stilling of applied and sustained thought, the bhikkhu enters and dwells in the second jhana, which has self-confidence, or actually a better translation might be mental clarity. The word is sampasadana, which is like a clarification of the mind. And singleness of mind, without applied and sustained thought, with happiness and pleasure, born of concentration, born of samadhi. Here the level of samadhi is more profound and more peaceful than in the first jhana. And the mind has this additional quality of self-confidence or mental clarity, clarification, because of the absence of applied and sustained thought. Vitaka vichara, those states, even though they can bring the mind to the first jhana, but they are like little ripples or waves on the surface of the mind. But when vitaka and vichara subside, then the mind becomes completely calm, completely still and clear. That is what makes this state of the second jhana, it's called the state born of concentration. 
that phrase is not used in relation to the first time, only in relation to the second time. And again, the meditator makes this rapture and happiness free from applied and sustained thought pervade his whole body. And now the Buddha uses a different simile to illustrate this state. He says, suppose that we have a lake which is actually like a lake fed by a spring. The spring is down below and there's no inlet coming from any direction. No streams, rivers or creeks are pouring into this lake. But rather the water comes into the lake just from these underground springs. And there's no rainfall coming down, no showers. And so there is only this water coming up from the spring, swelling up, welling up in the lake, and the water that comes from the spring pervades, steeps, and fills the entire lake. So we have this lake without any kind of disturbance of its surface by water from rivers or creeks or by the pattering of rain coming from above, but just this quiet, invisible, underground spring throwing up its water which comes into the lake and spreads throughout the lake until it fills the entire lake. In the same way, the Buddha says, the meditator makes this thoughtless, thought-free happiness or joy and pleasure pervade and suffuse this entire body. But as blissful and elevated as the state of the second jhana might seem, again it's still riddled with some imperfection. The main imperfection is this quality of piti, of joy or rapture. Now this quality of piti though it's able to give such happiness and rapture in the first and second jhana, but still it has a certain disturbing quality in it because it's a state of exhilaration or upliftment of the mind. It's not really a very quiet and peaceful state. And therefore, when the meditator wants to make the mind perfectly peaceful, perfectly settled and calm, then he sees that piti has to go, has to be eliminated. So then he makes a renewed determination to reach 
higher level of absorption. And when the mind becomes perfectly prepared and empowered by the practice, then it's able to remain or to become absorbed into the object without the accompaniment of piti, without this rapturous, exciting, exhilarating joy. Instead, it enters into an absorption in which there is only that blissful, pleasant feeling and the one-pointedness of mind. And this is what is called the third John. Okay, here in the formula, Okay, this is paragraph 27. The Buddha says, With the fading away as well of piti, of rapture, a bhikkhu abides in equanimity and mindful and fully aware, still experiencing sukha, pleasure with the body, he enters and dwells in the third jhana, on account of which the Noble Ones announce he has a pleasant abiding who is who has equanimity and mindfulness. And then he extends this sukha, this quiet, blissful feeling, extends it throughout the entire body so that it seems to pervade and suffuse the entire body. Then the Buddha uses a simile even more beautiful than the previous one. This is a pond of lotuses in which there are some lotus flowers which are born and grow underwater and so they spend their entire time beneath the water in this pond. And in this case, the water drenches, steeps, fills, and pervades these lotus flowers from their tips, the top, right down to the rootlets, so that there is no part of the lotus flowers which is not pervaded by this cool, clear water of the pond. In the same way, the Buddha says, the meditating monk makes that pleasure divested of piti pervade this entire body. But again, the state of the third jhana is imperfect. And the reason why it's imperfect is because sukha, pleasant feeling is compared to equanimous feeling or neutral feeling it's a relatively coarse state it's not yet a state which is perfectly peaceful and calm but there is another feeling called upeka vedana or adukamasuka vedana feeling which is neither pleasant nor painful 
which is much more peaceful, much more tranquil, and therefore much more sublime than the pleasant feeling. But there's always a very deep attachment to the pleasant feeling. So that's why the pleasant feeling is very difficult to relinquish, very difficult to give up. But when the meditator learns that there is a more exalted state than the third jhana, namely the fourth jhana, then he makes the determined effort to achieve it. And when all of his faculties are ripe and ready, then that pleasant feeling disappears and is placed, replaced by a different type of feeling called neutral feeling, a dukkama sutta vedana, feeling which is neither painful nor pleasant. And that marks the achievement of the fourth jhana. And within the fourth jhana, the mindfulness and equanimity become perfectly purified. The Visuddhi Magga gives a quite an interesting simile to illustrate the way the quality of equanimity becomes progressively more purified through the four the four jhanas in the early jhanas the first and second jhanas equanimity peka is present but it's not yet very visible and so in the formulas for those jhanas the Buddha doesn't mention equanimity at all. In the second, in the third jhana, in the formula, equanimity is mentioned because now equanimity is starting to appear. We could say that equanimity we might compare to the full moon and in the first and second jhana it's like a cloudy day where one could see the moon behind the clouds but only faintly so faintly that if somebody asks is the moon shining tonight you would say no the moon isn't shining but if you really look at the sky closely you can see the moon is there but it's just not bright enough even to merit mention. Now in the third jhana, the coarser disturbing factors are gone. Vitaka, Vichara, and Piti. And so now equanimity is beginning to emerge in its own right. This is like a night in which there's just a rather thin layer of clouds. Sometimes it covers the moon, sometimes you can see the moon a little more clearly, but the moon, you can make out the shape of the moon and the moonlight is fairly bright. So if somebody asks you, is the moon shining? You would say, yes, it's a bright moonlit night. 
but still there is that layer of cloud which prevents the moon from shining perfectly. That little layer of cloud that disturbs or that impedes the moonlight, that is the pleasant feeling, the sukha, the feeling of sukha, the pleasant or blissful feeling. But then when a wind comes and blows the clouds all away so that the moon is shining against the black background of the sky, that is like the equanimity in the fourth child. In this case, the black sky in the background, that is like the neutral feeling. And equanimity is like the full moon, which is now shining clear and bright. And so in this case, the Buddha says that the meditator, because with the abandoning of bodily pleasure and pain, and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, the monk enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure, that is the neutral feeling, and which has purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. And he sits pervading this body with a pure, bright mind so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the pure, bright mind. And now he uses another simile, a different simile, to illustrate this. He says, it is just as if there was a man sitting covered from the head down with a white cloth so that there would be no part of his whole body not pervaded by the white cloth. So the monk pervading this body with a pure white mind. Here there's an interesting distinction from the early simile, earlier simile. In the simile of the, say, the lake which is pervaded by the water from beneath, we have the lake is somehow a separate entity with the water coming up from underneath and pervading it. In the simile of the lotus flowers, we have the lotus flowers encompassed in the, and pervaded by the water of the lake. But in this simile, we have the clear bright mind actually enveloping the man from the outside, so the man is completely enclosed within this cloth, this white cloth. In the same way, in this case, if we apply the simile, it's not so much it seems that the pure bright mind is pervading the whole body from the inside to the out, but it is almost as if the pure bright mind has become so pervasive 
that it seems to be in, on the outside enclosing the body within that is as if the body is inside the mind rather than the mind being within the body okay and then the Buddha concludes this discussion of the four jhanas by saying that there are many disciples of mine who have in regard to these four jhanas have reached the consummation and perfection of direct knowledge okay maybe at this point that we will stop the discussion for this evening and ask whether there is any question anything unclear or maybe then we'll see it afterwards Vedati just said that <laughs> in sermons it's very common to speak in terms of five jhanas but in the suttas one gets four jhanas that's because according to the Abhidhammic method of explanation one can distinguish between two levels of jhana of two levels of a second jhana one could have a second jhana without vitaka but with vichara only and a second jhana without vitaka and vichara in fact in the suttas too the Buddha sometimes speaks of three types of samadhi samadhi without vitaka, without vichara I'm sorry samadhi with vitaka, with, with vichara that's the first jhana then there is a samadhi without vitaka, without vichara that is the second, third and fourth jhana but he says that there's also a samadhi without vitaka, but with vichara only now that samadhi one can't locate in the scheme of the four jhanas so in the Abhidhamma they have a five-fold division of jhanas Because any calls the samadhi that arises from anapanasati 
He says that's the, the target of the Hara, the dwelling place of the Buddhas, the Tathagatas. In the case of the great disciples, is there a specific mention of which meditation subject they like Sariputta, Mahamoda Lama, Mahatmatapa. He gave seven meditation subjects to Rāhula. But in the end it's Anapana. Anapana Sakti, yes. Always given pride of faith to Anapana. Always. I was having heard about Zen. How do you get Zen Buddhism and Zen meditation? Have you heard of that? Zen meditation? You will see, they think it is Japanese. No, no, the origin is from India. A Buddhist monk, Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma went to China first. And then he used the word jhana. Jhana, the word has two meanings. Thinking or burning. Thapa or chinta. Jhana means thinking or burning, burning the feelings. So he introduced his word jhana in China. They pronounce it as cham, jhana. Even today, Chinese say cham. When this was taken to Japan, they Japanized it as zen. So jhana becomes now zen. So zen is not Japanese, but some Japanese. So it became very popular everywhere. But really, this is that word jhana introduced by Bodhidharma Indian monk that he was now there. This is a meditation in Japan, the meditation, Zen meditation. May I ask what was the literary translation of jhana burning? Well, that's the word we use now, uh, uh, meditative absorption. Uh-huh. Meditative absorption. That's the word. Very difficult word to translate. I think that there's another Pali word, also from the Japati, it means burning, to burn. And so in the commentaries, they sometimes explain it's like a playful derivation, not really a literal derivation. They explain why is it called jhana? Because Japati. It burns up the opposing states, it burns up the five hindrances. This is the word now we use. <coughs> meditative, not just absorption. Meditative absorption. For want of a better word. Not textless. Definitely not textless. It's a burning and thinking. Yeah, he was. Two different meanings. Yeah, he was thinking. also by the word burning. Maybe, maybe it's the burning up the thinking. No, no, no. No, two different meanings. Jhāna means, jhāna means, through thinking, that's one meaning, but you also burn it, another meaning. So that word, jhī-chintāya, go jhī-thāpan, two roots, the radical meaning, but don't worry about the roots. Yeah, don't worry. When it says, that meaning jhā as thinking, it's not thinking in the sense of (laughs) reflecting or pondering, you know, with verbalized thoughts, but it's sort of, deep, concentrated thinking, or there's actually no really adequate uh, Western terminology for capturing a particular quality of mind. It's sort of sustained consideration or 
examination of an object. And I think that nowadays some people think you don't want samatha, you can do vipassana. There is misconception. Without samatha, how can you get vipassana? You must have calm mind. With his own words, samadhito tathabhutam ajanati. Only the controlled or calm mind sees things as they really are. To see things as they really are, first you must have a calm mind. If you drop some of the things in the nobody called part, you drop some of Then the seventh day. You must have at least first jhana. At least first jhana you must have. Now they say, oh, no, no, it's a samatha, vipassana. You don't know what they're talking about. They are extensors, ancient the arts pictures. They are funny. Any cases of jhana achieved through those subjects? Yes. That's what you're asking. Yes. Those meditation subjects by themselves, I don't think, would be capable of leading to jhana by themselves, because they involve a certain amount, I would say, too much discursive thinking. What the Buddha, there are various sutras where the Buddha speaks about those meditation subjects, Buddha Nusati, Dhamma Nusati, and he says, he recommends them very highly, of course, and he says that when one contemplates, say, the qualities of the Buddha, then there comes this piti, the joy arises. Then, through the joy, there comes this sukha, happiness. When happiness arises, then there comes samadhi, the mind becomes concentrated. But he doesn't go on to say, when the mind becomes concentrated, then he enters the first, second, third, fourth jhana. But he just stops at concentration. And so it would seem that these meditation subjects by themselves won't lead to jhana. However, they can be used to gain a high degree of concentration and then with that degree of concentration of kind of platform or basis one can then switch over to another meditation subject which will lead to jhana. For example, if one uses Buddha Nusati when one gains certain concentration by thinking about the Buddha then one might, if one is say visualizing the Buddha then one might instead of visualizing the form of the Buddha, drop the image of the Buddha and just visualize a ball of light. And then one is developing the light kasina, and then that will become a means for gaining jhana with the light kasina. Or if one is visualizing an image of the Buddha and one gets a good concentration with the Buddha radiating some colored light, then one might focus on that color only and seize attending to the form of the Buddha and then one might be developing a red casino or a yellow casino. And so one can turn the subject into a casino meditation. For example... But, yeah, but just one, also one interesting point I wanted to make also, and this I found that it seems in the suttas I don't know any passages 
which connect specific meditation subjects with the jhana. Do you know any text which connects specific meditation subjects? Specific, particular meditation subjects with the jhana. This is all done in the commentary. And so I think if one just reads the sutras themselves, one has no idea which meditation subjects would lead to the jhanas and which don't. But I don't know sutras would say that the anapanasati will lead into the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana. But I don't think that that's a reason for rejecting it, I think. Of the 40, the 40 classical meditation subjects, those are actually the 40 subjects of what's called Samatha meditation, tranquility meditation. Yeah. But not all of them are able to lead to all the four jhanas. This is it's a rather complicated matter, it's discussed in the Visuddhi Mata. Certain of the 40 meditation subjects don't lead to any jhana, but only as far as upachara, access concentration. Then there are certain, like these recollection of the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, the, the reflection on death, the meditation on death. Yeah, those are the kasinas. The kasinas lead to the four jhanas. What you mean is those, they are for temperaments, different temperaments, yeah. characters, yeah. six characters, temperaments. Raja characters, Desha characters, Soha characters, Vipakta characters, Shadda characters, Vipakta characters. So these uh, four suits different, according to the temperaments. Characters. So the Raja character for example, you get no, no. Here in this sutta, the Buddha is giving what a very, very comprehensive explanation of the way of practice. And so he includes all the four jhanas here. But the Buddha sought many different ways of practice. Um, and some methods of practice don't require the achievement of all the four jhanas. Yes? One has practice, power is over, and it becomes normal man. Excuse me? 
At this point, we shouldn't bring in the attainment of Nibbana. Now, we've not yet come to the section of the path dealing with the attainment of Nibbana. In fact, in the Sutta, the Buddha will not really directly show the way of insight leading to Nibbana. They'll just bring it in at the very end in a very um, concise way. But the jhanas, when they're attained, they can be lost. And if one achieves the jhanas, even the four jhanas, it doesn't mean one has achieved Nibbana. And if one loses the jhanas, then one can fall even to low levels. So the jhanas are not yet the state of security, but it's, they're only the practice of sama samadhi, right concentration, which will be... Nibbana comes to Vipassana. Yeah. And for Vipassana, you must have background samadhi. So samadhi will be Vipassana. And then... feeling because it's made to pervade the body. Is that what, that what you mean? Yeah, actually that is so. In terms of feeling or Vedana in the strict sense, Sukha is a Vedana. Sukha is a feeling, yeah. Piti is not Vedana. Piti is, in terms of the ag- aggregates, it's the Sankara. But even this Sukha here as a jhana factor is not bodily pleasant feeling. This is mental pleasant feeling. And Piti is like joy or rapture. And it seems very much like a feeling. It's rather hard to <laughs> use English terminology to distinguish it from feeling. But technically, PT is not classified as a feeling, but it's a mental state of exhilaration and joy closely connected with this pleasant feeling. But even though they're, too, are close, they're so closely connected that the Buddha often just speaks of them with one term, PT Sukha, like it was one like we say, cats and dogs. Yeah. But piti can fall away and sukha remains. Sukha is really the proper feeling, the mental feeling, whereas piti is a sense of mental exhilaration. The opposite of jhana. I don't know a single term which would be <laughs> one could say just one could say a state that's not the jhana that's a simple opposite or one could say the kind of mental quality which is opposed to jhana would be 
distraction, restlessness. There is a word that people get misled. Vijjana. They think that is the opposite. Jhana and Vijjana. But that word is quite different. Vijjana means thinking. We add another knee to the jhana. Not the uh, opposite. Yeah. But people got misled. Even monks got misled long ago. And the jhana and there is Vijjana. No, no, not the opposite. Vijjana means keep on contemplating, thinking. You, you, the word jhana becomes more stronger, the vijjana, vijjayati. They what, think yeah. about the five brigades, vijjayati, each yeah. aggregate is taken yeah. for the vijjayati. So what Not did, opposite. What did you have in mind? Did, that, did my answer? I, I want to know if there is clear definition of the opposition of jhana as one can uh, get together like this by jhana vectors and opposite. I would say more that it's um, there's a word in Pali which is vikapa, which means vikapa, Sanskrit vikshapa, distraction. Perhaps that is the opposite of the ground. Okay, I think we should... Oh. One question. Uh, I didn't really get the explanation to this. We are quite secluded from sensual pleasures. The next one that was done with the five yeah. Yeah. But is uh, quite secluded from sensual pleasures. Does that mean the location? Or? It means that one has to be secluded from not engaging and indulging in sensual pleasures. Is that all or does it mean that one has given up uh, given up enjoyment of this sense of I said giving up the enjoyment of I would take it in the sense that one is observing, at least for this period of practice, celibacy. How would you secluded from sensual pleasures? Um, Not physically enjoying temporal pleasures. Yeah. With the attainment of the both jhana, can one achieve the both side That will come next time. So, if I discuss that now, then we'll anticipate the discussion of next, next week. Okay, so now we'll stop and continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.